new paradigm for decision makers who must factor in the impact on future generations and not just what might happen in the short to medium term. As quality of life and well-being become paramount. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. If you like this show, please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. With me down the line in Dubai today is co-host and the National's future editor, Kelsey Warner. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Hello from the Dubai Future Foundation here today. It, it sounds that the soundscape is particularly futurified. I think <laughs> I, can, I can I can tell in your voice you're not you're I, not quite in my time zone. It's an exciting morning. So because there's this growing trend among governments and even the United Nations to start building in more systematic ways of using the future and using this principle of foresight to govern and to build policies. We're seeing it in Singapore, we're seeing it in the US, in Finland, here in Dubai and in the UAE. And so we spoke to Sophie Howe, who has the role of Future Generations Commissioner of Wales, to learn from her what they're doing in Wales around this rising trend. So it's it's become broader than just profitability and the bottom line or the bottom line being how it impacts people and not just the people that work or that are your customers today, but the future generations. Um, so let's listen to that interview now with Sophie Howe. Uh, you're the first in the world with the title that you have. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a rising trend, however, of nations engaging in this kind of future-focused work. Can you explain your particular role in Wales and, and where you sit in the government? Um, quite simply, my job in that act is to um, act as the guardian of the interests of the future generations of Wales. Uh, what does that mean in practice? Well, first of all, I'm not part of government. I'm an independent commissioner. So my role is to hold government and um, 43 other institutions covered by our law to account on how they're considering the needs of future generations. And then our act also sets out seven national well-being goals, long-term goals, a sort of vision for the Wales that we want to leave behind to our children, our grandchildren. And I have to um, both advise and support the government and others on how they should reach those goals, the steps they should take, and monitor and assess the progress they're making. Okay, so where do you even begin on that? I'm sure you're going to use the word metrics at some point, <laughs> but how do you measure, how do you enforce, where do you start thinking about the children and grandchildren? Yeah, so it's um, a huge challenge because obviously there isn't anything really that doesn't have some sort of implication for the future. Um, that's the starting point. The the second point is, is you know, I'm a representative of the unborn. So they don't speak to me very often um, because they're not here. So <laughs> I can't, you know, tell you with absolute certainty what, um, you know, those yet to be born will want. I also can't tell you um, exactly what's going to happen in the future. There are some things that we're pretty certain about, like... Um, climate change, like the fact that there's an aging population, like the fact that artificial intelligence, automation will be, you know, increasingly significant uh, parts of our our lives. But, you know, as we've seen during the last year, we have these shocks and these disruptors, you know, global pandemics and so on. So we don't know exactly how they will, um, you know, will change people's futures. Um, but as well, you know, it's important that there's a law because it provides that kind of legal framework. There have been many people who've been trying to get governments to think to the future. And, you know, politics and governance across the world is so short term because our whole system is structured around that. Elections are every four years. 
budget cycles that you know tend to be annual um you know you work in 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 silos and you know you work you know generally you work better or governments come to the fore in crises so none of that is about the long term this is really about cultural change how do we change the habits of very many lifetimes in politics policy and governance and how do we inspire people to think to the future so to me that means you are providing a sort of immediate gut check to policymakers. So what is the overarching question that you want them to be making sure they're asking themselves before they are setting law, making policy, and defining budgets? Yeah. So the the, the key question is, is this policy that you're thinking about enacting um, going to compromise the ability of future generations to meet their needs? Number one. Number two, um, is it going to help us or hinder us in reaching our seven long-term goals? Um, So those are the two most important questions. And uh, I suppose there's a sub-question to that second one, which is, um, you know, is there something that you could do which would better equip us or better take us towards those well-being goals? So let me give you, um, you know, an example Uh, One of the big first challenges of the legislation was that the government had plans to uh, spend the entire of their borrowing capacity on building a a big new stretch of motorway. Now, my question there in terms of the Act is, is that helping or hindering the ability of future generations to meet their own needs? And you have to look at that in the context of those seven goals, which talk about a healthier nation, which talks about tackling climate change, which talks about addressing socioeconomic disadvantage, for example. So um, in building that road, number one, you're going to spend that on borrowing. So future generations are going to be paying the cost of of, of building that road. Um, and then I asked the government, can you explain to me how that's in line with the climate emission targets that um, you have to reach because that's in the interests of future generations? Because we're going to increase our carbon emissions on this road. Um, Can you also explain to me how it's in line with um, a resilient ecosystem where the road was planned to go through a nature reserve, uh, which is obviously not in the interest of future generations? Can you also explain to me how it's addressing socioeconomic disadvantage in the long term? Because 25% of people in this region, the lowest income families, don't even have access to a car. So we are spending this money, you know, for no benefit at all to them. And can you explain to me how it's in line with the goal of a healthy Wales when we have an obesity crisis and what we need to get people doing is cycling, walking, travelling actively um, to try and address that obesity crisis? And they couldn't answer those questions. And although it was considered it was going to be a done deal that this was going to go ahead, the government stopped it. They couldn't answer those questions. They couldn't apply the test of in the interests of future generations and the achievement of our seven goals. So what happened instead? So instead, so the road was going to cost upwards of one and a half billion pounds. Instead, um, the government is spending 800 million pounds. There's going to be um, six new train stations. There's going to be mass investment in active travel um, to connect communities, new bus routes and so on, because that's a much better option when you apply those seven goals. So all of this sort of implies to me this kind of soft infrastructure focus. You're talking about public transport urban planning in a more holistic way. Um, This also gets into maybe affordable health care, education, mental health and well-being, Mm -hmm. a real shift from a focus on hard infrastructure, like the highway that you were just talking about, to Mm -hmm. things that have sort of less tangible, concrete examples in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But how do you engage people on these issues in Wales? How are you getting people to start thinking about the future in this? Mm -hmm. These These are sort of soft 
tough to imagine mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So how do you get engagement? How do you get people to care mm-hmm. about their future? Well, first of all, in developing our legislation, we had a national conversation with the citizens of Wales and we asked them the question, what's the Wales you want to leave behind to your children and grandchildren? And when we were asking them that kind of big, you know, big question rather than, um, you know, should they close this road in my area or should they build this road in my area? And what implication is that going to have to my commute? Is it going to be shorter or longer? What have you? When you start posing those questions, your kids, your grandkids, and um, you start to get different answers. And so the people of Wales came up with these sort of 13 principles, which were really linked back to Wales is a beautiful country of, um, you know, green, rich green natural environment. And people were really passionate about protecting that and the heritage that they sort of connected to. They were really passionate about the sense of community. I mean, Wales and how, you know, sometimes the way in which, you know, and they were articulated, sometimes the way in which we built communities where you can only access them by car, you might not, they might not have thought about that, but actually that means you're not chatting to your next door neighbour and you might not know if your neighbour down the road has not been out for the last um, week, which was something that you would know in the past when our communities were, were, were built and connected in different ways. So, you know, the principles they were coming up with were, you know, very much focused on some of those softer things um, into the future. Does that mean that when we start applying some of those principles, people, um, you know, don't start thinking about how they immediately affect them? Of course not. And you always get that backlash. But increasingly in Wales, there's a movement um, building around. So that example of the motorway initially was pitched as an environmental versus economy sort of argument. The business community were up in arms that it wasn't going to go ahead and so on. But actually now the business community are seeing and the pandemic has helped in some ways. Actually, do we all need to be travelling um, to work for nine o'clock when, you know, Welsh Government set up target now for 30 percent of people continuing to work from home and the knock-on consequences of that working from home is people are shopping locally in more independent stores and supporting their local um, economy they're walking and cycling their kids uh, to school they are chatting with people um, as they're doing that and over the last year in Wales, this is absolutely fascinating. So one of our metrics that we measure is, is there a sense of community in the area that you live? Prior to the pandemic, 52% of Wales, people in Wales said there was a sense of community in their area. Last September, when we took that metrics again, that had gone up to 74%. Now, why is that important? Might seem like, you know, oh, soft and, you know, sense of community is kind of nice, but it's not delivering on the economy. Actually, if you look at the World Health Organization metrics on um, what is important to people's health, 19% of what makes a difference to gaps in life expectancy, 19% are softer things like sense of agency in your community, uh, relationships in your community. Is there a sense of community where you live? So if we talk soft metrics into hard metrics, that's a really good example. When we think about loneliness and isolation, it feels like it's only going to really get worse as we all are sitting slack-jawed next to our smartphones. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the activities you've engaged on in Wales, what are some of the things that are working to decrease loneliness? Mm-hmm. How do we actually, how do we do that? Well, I think a lot of this is not rocket science. We just haven't valued it. So if I give you one example of a brilliant intergenerational program in um, where a, a school in quite a tough area, the kids in this school have got some quite tough things going on at home and living in, in poverty and an older people's home. So the school picked the kids who had poor attendance 
poor behavioural issues and so on. And they paired them with residents in, in a care home now and they go and visit weekly. What were the results of that? The use of antipsychotic medication in that care home has reduced by 50%. Since we've started pairing those relationships, the young people and the older people, calls out to the Welsh Ambulance Service to that care home have reduced by 30%. The kids' attendance has improved and the behaviour has improved. And that is just connecting um, younger and older people, giving the older people perhaps something to look forward to. Um, the care home even report kind of increased um focus on on sort of you know personal hygiene and, and so on amongst the residents because they want to get up and they want to get washed because they want you know it, Sean from the school to come visit them it also sounds like maybe a setup for a great screenplay yes <laughs> yeah is what I'm hearing here yeah um I want to that all sounds lovely but I now want to also talk about where technology fits into sure. this vision automation machine learning mm-hmm. the rise of the robots mm-hmm. is relevant to us right now and there's a mm-hmm. lot of hand wringing over that relevance, uh, rightfully so. And we are absolutely behind on regulating our future technologies. Mm -hmm. So in the role that you sit in, how are you thinking about the advent of technology and how does it fit in? Well, I think you're right in terms of the um, the role of of regulators and I read not that long ago that I think there was a, there's only a handful of AI ethicists in the world. And yet, you know, AI is now part of, you know, from whether Alexa wakes you up in the morning to, you know, you call an Uber on your, on your app or, or whatever it might be. So there's some huge challenges, um, there in terms of how governments are getting to grips with that and, um, mitigating, seizing the advantages that that bring, but, but stemming off and, and, and avoiding the, um, the pitfalls. And I think we really need to up our game on that. Undoubtedly, um, you know, in, in many aspects of our life, um, you know, AI is making our lives easier. Um, but, you know, one of the big, big questions here is, you know, AI and jobs. Are the robots going to take all of our jobs? In, in the UK, there's estimates that about 35% of jobs could be lost due to automation or um, artificial intelligence. Um, I don't think, and I think most experts seem to um, agree that it's not likely that, you know, Whole, many whole jobs will dis- disappear, although there will be some. But more and more, we will be working alongside robots and AI, and we're already doing that to some degree. And and that then, I think, comes back to, okay, what's the value system within which we want that new way of working to, to operate? So, um, you know, do we want to say, actually, we value the fact that um, this technology is giving us more time back as humans? And what we really want you to do is to do more human stuff, right? So we want you to spend that time interacting in your neighborhood, looking after your elderly um, relatives, which, by the way, there will be many more of because of the aging population. Um, We want you to to spend that time not having to get in your car to rush to work, to get to work for nine o'clock or whatever it might be, and instead be able to walk a cycle because that's good for the environment, it's good for your health. So actually our value system is saying, okay, we accept that, um, you know, AI is going to be a, a key part of our, our lives and our working lives. Um, and let's take advantage of that to improve lives for, for humans. Um, we have to think about that, however, through an equality um, lens as well. So there's some huge challenges if governments don't get a grip of this, of, you know, particular jobs, um, you know, being lost to automation, 
um, you know, could well be the the lower paid um, the lower paid jobs where people are already struggling to make ends meet. So there's a whole raft of things which I don't think we're anywhere near properly understanding, let alone planning for. Um, and you know, and that's the role of of people like me to be highlighting some of these challenges. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, I've got a report coming out. We'll look which looks at future trends and in in, in and inequalities. So the impact, who will climate change impact upon, who will AI and automation impact upon, and who will um, the aging population impact upon, positively or negatively, in a way that is trying to raise these issues for government to start planning now for any of those implications. I want to think more with you about climate change. We were woefully unprepared for the pandemic, despite Mm -hmm. for decades that being, you know, on the top of many Mm -hmm. risks lists Mm -hmm. with climate change. We have the stark warnings. We know we are somewhat too late. So now it is time to adapt and scale. Mm -hmm. What is going on in Wales on this front? I mean, sustainability buzzword, but what are some of the things that Wales is doing to adapt and prepare? Mm -hmm. So um, Wales was the first government in the UK to declare a climate emergency. Um, I think like many other governments, however, we're, you know, um, all of us have been sort of, you know, late, um, late to this, although Wales has got quite a proud history in a number of areas. So we are third in the world for our rates of recycling. Um, we're sort of knocking about 70% um, of, of waste being recycled. And actually, our new Beyond Recycling strategy is called Beyond Recycling for a reason, because we recognize that actually what we need to do is to reduce our consumption rather than just recycle the things that we've used too much. Um, and it's also making the connections between things like, we're talking loneliness and isolation before. How do you connect waste and reducing and recycling to loneliness and isolation? There is a connection. So in Wales, some of the initiatives that we're putting in place to reduce our waste are through things like the library of things. So how do you in a community um, that you're sharing things like lawn mowers, like paint strippers, like, uh, you know, hedge strimmers, all of those sorts of things. Um, and in the way that you do that, those sorts of things, repair cafes increasingly popping up in Wales. So you don't chuck away um, the stuff that doesn't work anymore. You go to a cafe, you interact with people, you have conversations whilst you're getting your whatever repaired. So those two things are kind of um, connected. And this, you know, that I think in itself is quite interesting. So more broadly on um, climate change, back to the conversation about roads. Our government has just announced a moratorium on road building, but almost every road scheme um, that even if They've been approved, have been paused, and now will be re-evaluated in light of our climate emissions targets and in light of the Future Generations Act um, goals. You know, we're doing a whole range of things around obligations on our public services to be carbon neutral by 2030. We are building a, well, it's not building, we're planting a national forest to sequest uh, carbon and to restore um, nature and biodiversity. And one of the things that I'm really pushing the government to do at the moment is to establish a national nature service to provide eco-literate jobs to um, people in Wales, particularly young people, um, which will also develop the skills that we need to restore nature in Wales and to help to meet our climate, uh, climate change targets. Wales is a population of about 3 million people. So when we think about replicating your efforts elsewhere on on the scale that you have done, mm-hmm. so that's about a third of the population of the UAE, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a very small percentage mm-hmm. of the population of the US, for example. Yeah. So 
When you think about replicating, what would you advise? Mm-hmm. Is there population levels that are optimized for scaling your efforts? What What are your thoughts on this? So I think that you know Wales has a particular set of circumstances. There's a you know there's a, a kind of you know a bit of a joke amongst Wales. Everyone knows everyone, and you know sometimes it's so it's easier to get things done. Um, you know access to people like me and to our government is much um, is much easier, and so on. If you've got a good um, a good idea or or what have you. But I think, so, you know, small is beautiful. And so it's easier to try new things. But also, you know, if you can make something work within a population of um, of 3 million, then I do, I do think it has the ability to, to scale. But I think we should also remember that, you know, there's, um, there's a, a, you know, a world renowned economist called Jeffrey Sachs, he was an advisor to Obama and to the last um, number of UN Secretary Generals. And he says, if you want to see um, where the good things are happening, look to the small countries. And, you know, I think that, you know, increasingly it is the actions that are happening on a city level, on a state level, on a small nation level that are the really exciting things and that others can learn from. So if every, um, you know, city or state in the U.S. adopted these sorts of principles, that adds up to, that would add up to some really significant change, you know, overall in the U.S. If, um, you know, uh, uh, the size of government in the UAE three times the size of Wales adopted these sorts of principles. That could make a significant difference in terms of what the rest of the region here is doing. So we all have this obligation, don't we, to be good ancestors, to leave the world better than we found it. We need governance structures uh, to enable us to do that. And we need to learn from the places where those things are happening and see how we can deploy them in, in, in our own circumstances. Sophie Howe, good to talk to you. Lovely to be with you. That was Sophie Howe, the Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, talking to Kelsey. Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.